0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Hopeless Romantic Podcast, where we talk about writing, editing, and publishing queer romance fiction. I'm Austin Chant.
1: I'm Amanda Jean. And this is the the inaugural episode. And it is entitled, Where Are You Going and Where Have You Been? So basically what we're going to do is introduce ourselves so you know who you signed up to listen to. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the history of queer uh, romance publishing. And then we're going to talk about where we see it going. So Austin, why don't you let all of the lovely people know who you are and what you do? All
0: right, well, like I said, my name is Austin Chant. I am a queer, trans writer, uh, bitter millennial uh, gamer, and romance enthusiast.
1: So I am an editor, writer, and publicist. So I'm coming at it with the sort of industry publishing perspective. And Austin is definitely coming at it from the writer and activist perspective, I think, generally speaking.
0: Absolutely. The angry yelling into the void um, and also you know, championing representation for everyone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that is a core theme of this podcast. Um, We are absolutely obsessed with queer romance and obsessed with with what we think this genre could be. We're aiming to give practical tips and tricks and advice to new and established authors to get them in the door if they're starting out. But also for, holy shit, (laughs) I feel like Sarah Palin. (laughs) (laughs) You just asked me what magazines I read. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and like I was saying, uh, for established authors, we really want to focus on what they can do to improve their branding and even just improve their writing in terms of how to write diversity or more aptly how not to write diversity.
0: Yes, because one of our other um, kind of core values is that we really want to see everybody um in the LGBTQIA community, see themselves represented in this genre. And we feel that this genre is an amazing opportunity um, for everybody to see themselves in happy endings and love stories and aromantic stories, as the case may be. Um, (laughs) We would really like to see representation for sort of every letter of the acronym, not just the the dominant G. force. The G, yeah. <laughs> not just the G.
1: But that's not to say that we don't come from um, a place of absolutely loving MM literature, because we do. Hell yeah. That is that is sort of, or was sort of our bread and butter. Um, I think it is the case for most people, actually. And we were going to talk a little bit about that, our personal experience with the industry and with the genre more specifically, and how it's changed and how we think it will continue to change um, in the years coming up.
0: Yeah, Amanda... I would love it if you could talk about, um, your kind of first forays into, uh, the queer romance publishing world, because they came many, many years before mine.
1: That's because I'm father time and you're a young sprite. Well, uh, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Um, I, as a, as a teenager realized that I was queer, I identify as bisexual and I started looking for stuff that was published in the mainstream because I wanted more representation, as every young, thirsty queer does. <laughs> and I couldn't really find anything that wasn't tragic. And so um, finding romance in particular was very difficult. There was one shelf at Borders that was just called, like, Gay and Lesbian. And it was right next to the poetry and large print <laughs> fiction, which really tells you how much importance they put on the uh on the shelf i was gonna and say how the much genre. importance
0: they put on large print and poetry
1: <laughs> yeah honestly like <laughs> poetry really got shafted in that too i feel bad for poetry um so i would i would go peruse the border shelf and then i think eventually um i decided well if i'm looking in brick and mortar stores why don't i look online which is really where you could find most of it unless you were lucky enough to go to powell's or an actual lgbt bookstore in your in your queer city of choice so I found on Amazon pretty much all the, the gay romance classics. I found Gaywick. I found, oh goodness, I found some Mary I found I found Jim Grimsley, who I love, but who is not exactly romantic. <laughs> Unless you like your romance with a lot of crying, because I don't. <laughs> um, so that was where it really started for me, and I started ordering paperback books off of Amazon and spending a lot of money on it. And then, finally, I started thinking... Hey, there's gotta be a better alternative to this. And luckily, other people thought that too, and ebooks were born. Yes. I love that I just implied that I invented the ebook yeah. by the way. I mean I willed it into existence.
0: Thank you, Amanda Jean.
1: <laughs> I do work for the people.
0: Yeah. According to depending on who you ask, you're either like the savior or the <laughs> absolute end of the world of books. Like you've either saved us or destroyed everything.
1: Um, I feel like I've done both. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> but yeah, I, I started looking into um, to ebooks, and that was actually probably around 2004, which ironically is when I think um, the first presses started popping up. The first uh, primarily MM presses started popping up in 2003, 2004. Yeah. There was like Loose Id, and then Dream Spinner came around in 2007, which really was like a live wire for the industry, and everyone started... Publishing ebooks around 2000, 2007 to 2009. And then now, if we look at the industry now, it's primarily ebooks. Like trying to get print is just not. Yeah, I mean, it happens. People definitely buy and sell print books. But if you look at author's share of um, royalties on that, or if you look at publishing houses, I mean, unless you're selling. Um, Really hot ticket items, you tend to take losses.
0: Yeah, and well, I feel like there's there's something else that's important about eBooks that kind of gets passed over in conversations about the values of print versus eBooks a lot, and that is that like, especially if we're talking queer romance, we're talking a community that is historically poorer than the general populace, Mm -hmm. and eBooks are a hell of a lot cheaper. You don't have to pay for yeah, yeah, you don't have to pay shipping. You just Click a button, pay a couple dollars, and you have like life affirming queer romance on your on your device of choice. On your
1: device of choice. And I was actually reading on a desktop computer until yeah. like a couple years ago. The actually
0: the very cheap. first the first uh queer romance I read was an ebook that I read on my computer. And I had to like download a program just for that because I didn't know how to
1: Was it a PDF?
0: It was I think E-pub? it was an EPUB, but then I was like, what is an EPUB? What do I do with this? <laughs> and A whole new world. Uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I did that for Ice Capade by Josh Lanyon.
1: Josh Lanyon is a lot of people's uh, introduction to yeah. queer lit.
0: Well, he was my first good introduction to, um, <laughs> to queer romance fiction. My introduction to queer romance came in, I believe, 2012, um, when I took uh, what should have been an amazing uh, romance fiction college class, sounds um, ideal. Sounds it, like
1: something I would take every day of my it life. It
0: does, and I kind of do now. That class was actually terrible. <laughs> it was. It was f- very focused on kind of like dominant representations of romance, but with no sort of analysis or context or anything that might have. I don't know. Maybe examined. Some of the problematic aspects, or anything like that. What did
1: that class even tackle then? uh,
0: Absolutely nothing. So you just it was basically a book group, but the but where we had to read specific like the authors, not the authors, the professors favorite books basically. That was kind of how it came across and That sounds
1: terrible. It was
0: bad and it was um so it was primarily het romance. Um we read some historical, some contemporary, um some paranormal and suspense and mystery. And then, you know, we sort of made like our special genre dive into uh, queer romance which unfortunately also just brought out this hotbed of homophobia in my classmates. So in many ways it was a it was a not a good primer for queer romance. It sounds
1: like a punishment more than yeah. anything
0: else. And um we there wasn't any kind of sort of contextualization of the genre of queer romance. It was just and there's nothing wrong with this but it was sort of led into my understanding that the queer romance genre didn't really exist it was just like a couple people self-publishing on Amazon because that was what we read um and I was like oh so like we were reading all these like beautiful like historical paperbacks and learning about the history of Avon and Harlequin in this class and like we get to see all of this history but queer romance is just like two people on Amazon who are One of
1: which is Josh Lanyon. <laughs> One of whom is Josh Makes Lanyon. Sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and
0: and then because we had read that and I was like, surely there must be more somewhere, I thought well, what do I know about romance? Because at this time I, I didn't read romance, um, and I, th- what I knew about romance was Harlequin?
1: Mm-hmm. Probably? Harlequin question mark.
0: And uh, so I looked up Harlequin, and from there I found Karina Press, which is um, one of Harlequin's digital first imprints, and I believe it is the only place where Harlequin currently does MM.
1: Yeah, at least as a, as a primary It's sort no, of their more pairing.
0: experimental um, press, um, and so they do Minaj, they do BDSM, and they do Sci-Fi Fan to see and they do MM and some FF, I believe. I went there because that was all I could find for some reason, and read icecapade by Josh Lanyon. And I went, "Oh, this is I like this." And in that voice, yeah, in that voice exactly. <laughs> you murmured
1: it lovingly to your paperback. Well, you're, you're, no, no you're paperbacks Epoch. here. <laughs>
0: That's Epoch. for the
1: rich folk. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And then I read a couple more books um, from Karina. They have great sales, and so I picked up just like a whole bunch and read through them um, pretty ravenously. But I still didn't think there was a queer romance genre until 2013, when I went to um, the very first uh, Gay Romance Northwest
1: conference.
0: Uh, conference, which is right here in Seattle. And uh, it's an amazing uh, one-day conference that is. It just had its third year and all uh, like a bunch of presses donated books to it and there's there a was, book
1: fair there's a readings. book fair where
0: different presses and tons of different authors were tabling and I was all of a sudden like wait whoa what that was where I first realized that there was such a thing as trans romance and um, choir
1: of angels sang choir of angels sang it.
0: yeah um, I picked up Wallflower by Heidi Below right after that, and that was the first trans romance I ever read. That's
1: precious. I know, right? Especially because it was Wallflower. Yeah. That's really adorable.
0: Yeah, I love that book. It's a good book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> by the way, like if you're expecting like us to be impartial human beings, it's not going to happen. We're, we actually met at GRNW. Yes, we did. That was the circumstances of our biblical, <laughs> preordained... <laughs> Um, meeting. Uh, we met at GRNW and um, we've actually worked together. Yeah. I have edited your first uh, novella. Yes. Coffee Boy, which is in silver and gold. Personal plug! <laughs> an anthology <laughs> I edited! <laughs> um, and um, so just for, in the interest of full disclosure, we're totally friends and colleagues and people who like to scream about our favorite genre Yeah, in inconvenient places, which is why this podcast exists, yes.
0: basically. Yes. And I um, met Heidi below at that conference as well, and I believe probably just sort of blubbered about how excited I was that there was a genderqueer character in her book. I didn't actually know her until later because I think all I did that year was just be like, "Oh, you're Heidi below. I think you wrote a book with a trans character that's coming out soon. Cries. Ah, that's great." <laughs> Runs away.
1: <laughs> yeah, basically, I, I mic drop so many times during the first year in W because they they really do get a great eclectic group of authors, and you end up you know just going if you go into the um, the author like table section, the meet and greet, if you will, you just sort of peruse. It's alphabetical, and you're just like, "Oh, oh my! I I've read your stuff, so you have to." Start stop and harass them which i have done many
0: yeah. times and i just get overwhelmed like i see people with their tables of beautiful books and like i've read some of them and just i just stroke them i just yeah like i buy not the authors I'm, the books yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> in most cases. That's actually where I buy paperbacks if I'm going to. I find that's generally what I do in this genre is I buy almost entirely ebooks. And paperbacks and and stuff
1: you've already read. Paperbacks of
0: like my gems. Every year I go there and I buy at least a couple books and I get them signed. And then it's like, you know,
1: it's like a little personal memento. It's more
0: like a memento than that. That's really what I get print. I was going to say
1: like the difference between that where you literally have this smorgasbord of fiction to choose from and you get to talk to the authors versus spending. 40 or fifty dollars to buy two or two books from Amazon back in the day is so unbelievably different yeah especially because the books you had access to a lot of them were self-published and so they may not have had the best um, printing mm-hmm. um and then the ones that weren't you know sometimes you had to get it out of print and now you can literally just go on your smartphone and buy a book or you can show up to gr and w and they also have free swag. Like if you show up to the actual conference itself, you should, and then you should just go buck wild on the table of free books because they have that.
0: Shout out to GRNW for their free we love you
1: (laughs) (laughs) we do love you you're great um but i mean there's other there's other um conferences and meetups throughout uh, the world that i think we'll talk about in later episodes yeah Um,
0: and i i feel like this is a great segue into like where the genre is now because something that i find vexing but an, an interesting opportunity is still how outside of the genre i don't See that people know it exists still. Mm-mm. Like no, they, to this they day. do not believe. Like I was in a group um, of trans um, non-binary individuals that just like a social group uh, meet up in that was local to the area, and mentioned that I was really interested in writing romance, and their their reaction was. You know, not only like, well, there's no such thing as queer romance, but it was also like, oh, and all romance is like bad tropes and like misogyny and tragedy and blah, 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 which is tragic because these books are like the books that I read now are some of the most wonderful, warm and affirming and like snuggly feelings books I can find in the world. And, and really well written.
1: Yeah, like, really,
0: really, really good books.
1: Yeah, I grew up. Um, I grew up reading uh, Het Harlequins and every permutation thereof. And really, the one thing that I am um, super glad for is that the conventions of, like, I would say ancient Harlequins because the industry has made great strides, but the, the tropes and conventions and sort of the harmful aspects of those romances didn't transfer en masse mm-hmm. <laughs> to queer romance. Yeah. And I think that's just a nature of what the, the genre's specific needs, because uh, you talked about this at the panel, but I think the really interesting thing is, um, and one of the reasons I was looking for fiction that was romantic was because our options are like, broke back, broke <laughs> back really depressing ending in tragedy stories so just by the nature of this the stuff we're already exposed to the material we produce ends up being a hell of a lot more cuddly and snuggly and affirming Mm -hmm. and validating than i think it might for a more traditional like het Harlequin.
0: Yeah, just for context, this was a panel that I did at at GRNW this year where I I talked about how how fulfilling this genre is as a place that is explicitly about happy endings Mm -hmm. and non-tragedies and places where, like, your lover doesn't get murdered and you're not you don't just spend your life forever alone. It's not
1: like a lesbian pulp where it ends in insanity and suicide. Like, that, I mean, that was talking about, like, the the origins of our genre. um, If you look at gay and lesbian pulps from well gay pulps from the 30s yeah. and lesbian pulps from the 50s and 60s it, in order for those books to be published they had to have it was a necessity a requirement that the characters be punished for their queerness yeah and with the, insanity and death
0: yeah you have this kind of like weird ableism homophobia kind of mesh in these mm-hmm. early pulps because like it's all this like you are bad, wrong in these ways, and like we're going to have this like little titillating, thrilling story to with make, the understanding yeah. that it must be bookended with tragedy and death. Yep. And I love that the genre has come to a very, very different place. Where I do think, even though the genre is still, by and large, more MM than... Anything else? More cis gay man fiction. That was a really awkward way to say that. (laughs) More cis gay man fiction.
1: Um. (laughs) It's your turn to be Sarah Palin. Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: I'm a robot. I'm a robot (laughs) pundit. I I think the genre is more cis MM than probably anything else. It's still, it's making huge movements towards being a more inclusive genre. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of presses that are really actively acquiring a more broad spectrum of queer identity, which is really awesome.
1: It's really awesome. And I think the important thing to note here is that in previous years, I've really seen the industry be split in terms of like, well, this house handles lesbian fiction, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And this house handles M.M. And this house might handle some strand stuff on like the back burner. But in recent years, it's become way more encompassing where a lesbian press or something that has typically been a lesbian press will publish pretty much any permutation of the rainbow. And some of the MM only presses have opened their doors to trans content, um, asexual content. And I'm really excited about that because I feel like as people in a marginalized community, we should really link arms and be sort of a united front. And I think that that gives us the best chance to break into the mainstream.
0: Well, I think it it also opens a lot of doors for understanding That like queer experiences are not a monolith. No, like if you isolate like the the queer romance genre into just cis mm, like and you make it the avatar, and you make it kind of the avatar, you're you're not looking at like there's so much more going on, and you're not looking at the fact that there are trans queer men, and there are ace queer women, and like
1: and where does all the bi fiction go? Where
0: does all the bi fiction go?
1: (laughs) <laughs> where do we belong? Yeah. So yeah, I uh, i am super in favor of where I think the, the genre is headed. And I like calling it the genre. Because mm-hmm. even though we just discussed the fact that it's not a monolith, having having combined forces, having, you know, multiple presses take more than just one flavor is incredible because it gives us more of a sense of community. It lets us not feel alienated. It acknowledges that there is intersectionality. Yeah. That is absolutely the future of queer ro- queer romance. That's what people have been... I would say begging for, and that is what is happening now, and will continue to happen, at least in my opinion.
0: It's it's kind of an interesting genre to look at, sort of from a top view, because I, uh, top I feel, view. Ay, <laughs> I usually take the bottom view.
1: <laughs> is that like taking the low road?
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've complimented myself here, but we could talk about how um, submissive sexuality is coded as negative, and that is all tied into. I almost <laughs> wrote a thesis about this once. I almost wrote this for my romance class. That will have to be an episode. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Pre sneak peek in that romance class, there was a lot of discussion about like demonizing, you know, sexually active women or anything like that, or 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 demonizing um, virginal men. And it's really interesting to see how those tropes like do or do not come through to queer romance. And they they do, but it's
1: interesting to see what shapes what happens there. Yeah.
0: When you look at queer romance, like. It's kind of a hybrid of every possible permutation of queer romance all mushed into one category together.
1: Well, that's, like, like the way it's 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 been illustrated on, like, Amazon.com is you mm-hmm. literally have, like, LGBT romance.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and there's no so many, so many subgenres. Mm-hmm. Like, you have as many subgenres as het romance does, but those by now are kind of broken down. Like, are you looking for contemporary historical Western sci-fi fantasy? Shifter. and? shifter and which by now is really its own category it is its
1: own category it's not paranormal anymore it is shifter
0: and with queer romance everything's kind of jumbled in together and i hope that also translates to a readership that is a little more flexible because Mm -hmm. i think there's there's a lot of potential crossover in readership for contemporary and historical and fantastical queer romance. I don't know, it's just kind of an interesting smorgasbord of a genre um, that I have trouble describing to people who aren't already in it.
1: Yeah, I, this is a forest for the tree situation because there are so many, I, I would almost say nuances, but I don't know that it's necessarily nuance, it's, it's partially because... Um, If you don't know anything about romance in general, trying to explain how <laughs> queer romance has, has like struggled its way to developing its own conventions and its own tropes and its own genre definitions is an entire new bag of worms.
0: It really is.
1: I was going to talk a little bit about the fact that there has been a definite emergence of fandom crossover in yeah. terms of people who got their start writing fic and who now either have ceased writing fic entirely to write original... Or who do it on the side. Who
0: still do both. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I wanted to talk, uh, and we'll probably devote future episodes to this at length, but I think it's interesting to see what tropes and conventions have come from fandom. And I think a really interesting one that we may talk about at length later is trigger warnings Mm -hmm. and content warnings.
0: Absolutely. I found, I mean, I would have to do a little more research into this to say for sure, but I feel like I see so many more content warnings on queer romance publishers than I necessarily do on het romance publishers. Mm -hmm. And that was actually that was a major topic that i uh kind of stumbled upon in that terrible romance class that I took was that some of the content of the books was honestly triggering for me and that i kn- I knew could be severely triggering for, for other people for other people I mean there was you know extremely graphic violence, sexual assault slurs that kind of thing some of it like very you know prolonged very violent um, unacknowledged un- completely unacknowledged of, yeah. and it's not necessarily that that content shouldn't exist but I found myself especially for a genre that, it's not necessarily escapist, but like, I think the goal of romance often is a certain amount of uplifting mm-hmm. of the reader and a, and a certain amount of like happiness and satisfaction. I found it was especially jarring in romance, and that is why I appreciate so much how much content warnings have carried over into uh, queer romance.
1: Because most um, most queer romance publishers, if they don't put it in the book itself, which some people do, some people don't, they definitely put it on the website. Yeah. So you have the option of pre-screening because before I think you were sort of stuck in this. Awkward places like either i read this and it's russian roulette or i make someone else read it for me or i or i trawl through reviews and end up unbelievably spoiled yeah and you know there's no there's nothing to say that they'll actually catch anything yeah
0: well especially for queer fiction um like in the pre-romance like what you're talking about like you have a lot of queer fiction that is very tragic mm-hmm. and you even know, the romance like y- even the stuff yeah. that had
1: a happy ending like yeah. there there were still heaps of of stuff to trawl through in yeah. terms of like ooh, yeah well that's I mean there is the 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 sort of convention of like you drag your characters through hell and then you drag the readers through hell and then you give them that happy ending but there's also the idea that like maybe the readers don't want to be blindly dragged through hell. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like maybe they want to have a heads up about what's going to happen to these characters so they don't have to put the book down and run screaming. Just small favors. Yeah. Just small favors like content warnings.
0: Yeah, I find it super interesting how many authors I know myself included and if I may say you you, you as well who have had a start in in fandom, um, in fandom.
1: Yeah. either reading or writing or, or, or both,
0: both. <laughs> because I feel like there's there's a certain amount of readership crossover but always less than I expect?
1: There's entirely less than you expect. You look at really popular uh, fan fiction authors who have like a built up fan base and then they, they transfer over to original fiction and you know, they might have a mailing list or a website or just, you know, thousands of kudos or what have you and people are like, oh, I'd love to read your original stuff and then they start posting, you know, promotion for it and they look at their sales and they're like, what happened to that built in audience that I thought I had? Which is a really interesting perspective when we look at things that have happened in the industry over the last couple years considering Fifty Shades mm-hmm. And then in, specifically in um, MM Romance, A Captive Prince mm-hmm. and just things that have had their life as fanfiction or authors who have started out as fanfiction authors and have they successfully transitioned to become successful original authors. And the answer is sometimes more surprising than you would assume.
0: Yeah. We, I mean, we talked a little bit about how there is a big difference in writing, even if you're writing queer romance in both places, writing for fandom and writing for an original publication is so different. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the thing that I notice the most when authors are kind of jumping back and forth is that in fandom, you have so much built in understanding of the world and the context of the world. And with original fiction, you have to do, you have to do that build up. You have
1: to do some, some, some establishing and and world building and character development. However, I will say like, that's not to say that you don't do that in fan fiction or that is somehow lesser. It's not, it's just different. And I would say um, for fan fiction, like, especially with newer authors, there's a lot of stumbling around trying to figure that out. I've done it. I assume you have oh, done it. Oh yeah. <laughs> Unless your first drafts are just perfect out the gate. And I, don't I mean know about it. everything I do is pretty perfect. <laughs> uh, the work you have to put into changing your writing style and changing how much exposition you use the level of intricacy and in world building because you don't have a pre-existing frame even if you're wilding wilding even if you don't have a wildly AU foundation. You know, if you're writing a really AU fanfiction and you have to invent world building.
0: AU means alternate universe for oh, our yeah. non-fanfiction uh, listeners. For non fandom people.
1: <laughs> but yeah, it's just an interesting um, change, I think. Mm-hmm. And you get to see a lot of um, authors come out of fandom and see how their writing style and habits change.
0: That said, there are, I do find that there are sometimes interesting tells that authors mm-hmm. who come from fandom have that even if it's not, you know, even if they are, are writing perfectly, perfectly in original fiction i'll notice that's a phrase let's that, a that phrase. originated from fandom like, i will actually
1: say i'm sorry to interrupt you but i will no. say that my the number one thing that i see is a description that involves the word all like if you see a character and they're describing a character probably sometimes in like the heat of the moment let's be real here he looked at character b all limbs and flushed face and like it's it's very like this is Amanda freestyling
0: some uh, <laughs> romance for us right here no
1: on. one no one take that no one plagiarize me that was (laughs) fucking genius i've just found the beginning of my next sex scene but um you do see it a lot you you see it pop up as a as a way to get into describing something um as if these characters are defined by these traits in the moment like they're all cultish limbs and flowing hair (laughs) Jesus,
0: i just saw a literal horse (laughs) I just imagined, like, a kind of a person, but with horse arms. A yeah, but, but no, but on hind legs, but just with, like, hooves and flowing locks. Anyway, thanks for that.
1: Um, basically, if you use that phrase, you're describing a horse. If you use all, <laughs> you're definitely... Horse. But yeah, that's one of the things that I see as an editor constantly, and I know it because I see it. I mean, there's nothing to say that the two can't have crossover and, like, conventions in fanfiction become mm-hmm. conventions in traditional literature it's fine if that happens but when you're attuned to one and you see it in the other you're like oh I see what you did I see where you come from
0: I know that yeah it's so interesting to me that there is like a major major crossover but there's definitely fandom has its own literary history at Mm -hmm. this point it has its own kind of groundwork that's laid and when people kind of grow up in one like I don't think there are a lot of people right now who are growing who have grown up with queer romance although fiction. hopefully that will
1: be a thing I
0: can't wait for that to be true um but I think you you can really specifically trace it from fandom and I'm curious what will happen in the future when you can trace like the conventions of queer romance because I think they're they're going to take a lot of different influences there's going to be influence from traditional romance there's going to be influence from fandom there's going to be influence from from all over the place. So that should give you an idea of the kind of discussions that we're going to be having on The Hopeless Romantic. Coming up uh, in our next episode, we're going to talk about uh, NaNoWriMo and making- National word-
1: Novel Writing Month for the for the people <laughs> who don't you. know.
0: National Novel Writing <laughs> Month, which is a um, yearly challenge to write a novel in uh, 30, 30 days. days that is 50,000 words or longer. And we're going to talk about making word count and sort of uh, fiction length conventions and stuff like that.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, I should say, say for the record that Austin knows what he's talking about because he has won Nano for the last...
0: Well, (laughs) this is my 10th anniversary of attempting Nano if I win this year, which... I will. You will. It will be my ninth consecutive win in November, but I've also done it in a couple other months and generally succeeded. So, I have some experience.
1: So, we're going to talk about that, and I will say um, in the future, our episodes, each of them will have a topic, much like this one. This one was sort of a broad overview to give you an idea of who we are and how we talk to each other about our fave genre. And in the future, we will have monthly or at least monthly special uh, guests, and we'll discuss topics with them.
0: Yeah, we're, we are We want to really host people from all over, so um, we're going to be talking to writers, we're going to be talking to readers, we're going to be talking to people who publish in the industry, um, and kind of... You know, every, reviewers, reviewers editors, to, yeah, cover artists yeah, if cover they're artists. interested.
1: People. Oh, and um, marketers, I think that that is an oft-neglected part of the industry, yeah. so we will definitely be focusing on marketing.
0: At the end of each episode, um, we're going to be highlighting a couple of uh, submission calls um, from interested presses, just so that we can give you all some direction, and as a call to action, we want your voices out there, and we want your stories to be heard, so definitely. this week, or this episode This rather, episode,
1: yeah. We are going to be Plugging too. Um, I'm trying to choose something that's a little bit more traditional, and then something that may not be familiar to every single queer romance author—a little bit off the beaten path. So the first one I am plugging is actually a company that I work for. Full disclosure: it is called Nine Star Press. It is launching this month, which is super exciting, and they accept and definitely are courting any flavor of LGBTQIA romance and erotica and literary. So you got all of it in one. You can definitely um, check out their submission information, ninestarpress.com. And then this uh, other submission call is from J. Ellington Ashton Press, and they are a horror focused press. So keep that in mind. Definitely um, look at uh, their submission information thoroughly. But they are seeking um, LGBT books, novellas, and stories. And um, they have a bunch of different imprints for fantasy and sci-fi and erotica. So So check them out and submit 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 write write your little butts off
0: and that is it for our intro episode if you'd like to check us out on social media we are on facebook as the hopeless romantic podcast we're on twitter at the hr podcast and uh if you'd like you can check us out on our personal twitters i'm at austin chanted and i am at
1: amanda h gene
0: that's our show
1: i hope you guys enjoyed it and we'll speak to you soon Thanks for listening to this episode. The Hopeless Romantic is produced by Daria DeFore, with graphics by Keezy Young, and music by Carly Ann Warden. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.